The Veterans Report is sponsored by James Cannon. Welcome to the Veterans Report, the region's only show dedicated to those who have served our country. We have the latest news and information on resources available to veterans, including health care, education, employment tips, local volunteer organizations, and more. To those who have served, those who are serving, and to those who will, we salute you. And now, the host of the Veterans Report, Jim Cannon. And welcome back to the Veterans Report. We appreciate you tuning in today. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna change gears a little bit here, and uh, uh, we're gonna have our guest on at the top of the hour. But uh, just to let you know, uh, coming up at the halfway mark, we're gonna cover a couple of stories that came out this week, including uh, the parade, the American Legion, uh, 100th convention, uh, Code Talkers Day, the USS Lang, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, National Aviation Week is in the mix as well. But um, so hang in there. But like I said, we have our guest with us. Uh, we have the chief operating officer of Charity Navigator, Larry Lieberman. Larry, how you doing? I'm terrific, Jim. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for calling in. Appreciate it. This is uh, this is wonderful. And the reason you're here today, Larry, is because of this um, the study that just came out, the Charity Navigator Hurricane Harvey study. And I wanted to kind of pour through some of the details. You know, as you can imagine, we deal with a lot of veterans groups, a lot of nonprofits and, and charities. And uh, this, this is good information no matter what your group or what your involvement out there in the nonprofit world. So this is, uh, this is of interest. So this is great. Um, so w- big picture, Larry, what is the study about? Oh, well, the study is uh, an opportunity for all of us to look back on what happened uh, last August when – $125 billion in damage uh, occurred in the Houston marketplace, uh, and uh, more than 100 people tragically died, uh, and, and most of the community was damaged. So here we are a year later, uh, looking back on how we all supported that disaster, how we provided relief to the victims, and how we're working to rebuild a city as large as one like Houston. So uh, let me, I, I erred for a minute. I got, uh, you know, cart and horse mixed up here. I, I do want to spell out to people exactly what Charity Navigator does. Uh, now, we've had Charity Navigator on this show before, and uh, and Sarah was kind enough to, to bounce this data over to us. Um, Charity Navigator is the nation's largest uh, evaluator of charities, and you have data on almost 2 million U.S.-based nonprofits, and you do ratings, uh, you have ratings for uh, close to 10,000 of them. Um, so I wanted to get that out there. Uh, anything do you, do you want to add about Charity Navigator's mission, Larry? Yeah, I mean, uh, that information is all correct. I mean, Charity Navigator exists to help donors uh, have the information and access to the data they want to help them make better giving decisions. So we, we are a nonprofit ourselves. We exist for the charity donor. And uh, our only agenda is to help people give to the most effective organizations that address the cause areas they'd like to give to, whatever that may be. Now, as we've covered before um, on the show, you, you know, Charity Navigator is a great resource to go to if somebody's thinking about giving or getting involved in a nonprofit or a charity in the U.S. Uh, because you are you you have <laughs> you have multiple layers of of information that people can dig into there so it's i highly recommend it's a great resource yep it's great for donors it's great for volunteers it's great for anyone who wants more information and more research all right so let's get um 
let's now that we've given uh, plugs for Charity Navigator over and over, let's get into the study <laughs> and and what you looked at. So this has to do with Har- Hurricane Harvey specifically, but again, uh, you, you know, some of the the general information, some of the numbers, some of the methodology that could apply to any natural disaster, right? Uh, correct. And uh, Charity Navigator has been really fortunate to be able to expand the resources that we can make available to donors to help guide them in their giving. Uh, and this study about Hurricane Harvey uh, is enormously detailed, has been has taken months to assemble, and is uh, the first of, of three that will come out uh, right in the series now as we look back a year after Hurricane Harvey, uh, Hurricane Irma, and Maria, the three storms that did so much damage uh, across the United States uh, last August and September. Okay, well, that was one of my questions, too. Is is this the first one that you've done like this, this, this in-depth? Yeah, it's really the, the first time we've had an opportunity to dig so deeply into such an extraordinary disaster. So, I mean, but, but what was the, what was sort of the, I don't know, the genesis of this? What was the impetus for doing this? Uh, it was the scale of the disaster. It was uh, the addition of new resources at Charity Navigator, uh, Sarah Nason and others, who were able to spend more time with the organizations that were directly providing relief in, it, in Houston uh, and in the other areas. So, and, and it's part of our ongoing commitment to make sure donors get more information. I think donors are getting more and more sophisticated. Uh, unfortunately, disasters like this seem to be getting more and more complicated. And we need to provide everyone with understanding of, of how we can support our communities. So now you teed this up. You, you dropped this in there, um, the actual cost. The cost of Hurricane Harvey was approximately $125 billion just in damage. Um, and it was estimated that, is that right, 27 trillion gallons of, of rain fell during the storm? That, that is correct. I mean, that is... Uh... And that's not our number, fortunately. Um, <laughs> we have the, the Weather Service to thank for that and, and others. But yes, the the depth of the crisis in Houston was truly extraordinary. And the fact that it hit such a major city in this country and truly disabled it. So let's talk about, so with, with something that large, uh, obviously there were a lot, and I remember this, there were a lot of organizations, some formal and some sort of, I don't know, kind of ad hoc, where people just sort of got together and went down there. But so you, your study looked at actual organizations, right? Right. So at, at Charity Navigator, we um, reach out to the organizations that are providing help and then share that information with donors. So we go out and look for highly effective and highly rated organizations that we're familiar with that are providing aid. Right. So, so we've got relationships already, and we've got a team of analysts who are, are you know, 365 days a year in touch with these organizations. So when crisis hits, we can go out to them and uh, get a, a more complete understanding of how they're responding in the short term, and in this case, really getting a summary to look back on what's happened a year later uh, and, and what needs still exist. You know, part, of, part of why we do this is, is because the crisis in Houston is not over by any means. Uh, the majority of organizations who have been providing relief there all year are still there. Yeah, that, that's that's something important for people to remember, is there's still a lot going on down there. It wasn't like a, 
uh, you know, a 30 day turnaround. I mean, there's still a lot of damage. There's still a lot of people who need things, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a crisis that will take years uh, to resolve. It will take years to rebuild the city. Um, most of the organizations who are responding say it's at least a three to five year endeavor, some say a decade or more uh, for the work they do. So this study that we're talking about, just so everybody who's listening uh, gets it and, and might want to might want to jump into it. It's on your website now. It is now posted on your website because it's now public. Um, it, there's a bunch of stuff in here that I've, I've pulled the notes. Um, the items still in demand. This is directly from the from the study. The items still in demand, as reported by some of the organizations, are the following: flooring, roofing, bedding, kitchen appliances, drywall. Uh, it goes on and on. Books, educational resources, food, and water. Um, and then there's a bar graph next to it that lists immediate needs, long-term needs, funding, and other. Um, is that the kind of, I mean, did you get that far into it, like the, the actual specifics, or did they, did they just sort of bounce this information to you? Um, well, what we did in this study is we, we asked a series of 40 questions to each of these organizations, uh, and some of them were extraordinarily detailed. What may help donors and, and everyone just to take a look back after a crisis like this is the top three ongoing needs after this crisis. And that's what's kind of surprising for us, right? Um, the number one need echoed across virtually all the organizations providing support is the need for affordable housing for those people who have been displaced in Houston. Right? That, that's the number one need. Um, and, and the second need is really one for all of us to sort of pause on. And there is a crisis and lack of availability of counseling, mental health, and psychological services. The emotional trauma of a storm like this is enormous. And there really is a lack of resources in use in addressing that. And then, frankly, the third is obviously the rebuilding of the, of the destroyed areas. Well, see, that's interesting. I didn't. I guess when you look at a natural disaster, you look at the physical, tangible uh, aspect. You know, just as a layperson, all the physical stuff. You don't. You don't think about what you just mentioned—the mental health care. That's that's an interesting twist to this. Yeah, I, and honestly, I think you know, for a certain core of your listeners, uh, it's something very powerful to relate to because we know how challenging it is. Service people and vets are, get moved around, get displaced in all kinds of um, activities which cause great, great disruption and trauma. And the services like these are needed, whether you're a service person or, or a, a lay person. So, um, and, and I find that surprising that there's not enough down there, but I guess, you know, we, that, that drives home the magnitude of a storm this size. So of all the organizations that were down there and, and doing stuff, you managed, for, this, for the purposes of this study, you got uh, – 32, right? Correct. So how did you whittle it down to 32, or did they just sort of weed themselves out? Um, actually, we started uh, with all our work at Charity Navigator. We identified 59 organizations that are highly effective and highly rated by Charity Navigator, and we offered uh, our additional information on these organizations to our users. We went back to all 59 a year later, and it was 32 of those 59 that were really in-depth contributors. Most of the others who have not um, participated in this study are still aggregating um, and measuring the results of, of the work they did. Uh, but clearly, 
these 32 represent the majority of organizations that Charity Navigator recommended uh, that donors get involved with. And, and, and they're an enormous bunch. I mean, together it was uh, uh, these 32 organizations received over $742 million in individual donations. <laughs> Man, just in donations? Just in donations from 5.4 million people. So that's, and that's the scale we're talking about here. Good. Well, I tell you what, uh, you know, on the on the plus side, uh, sort of a tangent, but that speaks volumes about our country, the fact that people ponied up that much money. Yeah, I, people who know me will hear me say that over and over again. Um, Americans are uniquely generous in our support of our community. And each one of us sort of defines our community differently, whether it's our neighborhood, uh, our, our city, our state, our country, or the entire world. But there is no culture on the planet more generous than Americans. Well, I, I tell you, these numbers, uh, they, they quantify it, and then they put it in black and white, so it's, it's right in front of you. Um, so what's the difference, just so I understand and, and our listeners understand, what's the difference between restricted funding and unrestricted funding? Uh, it's, it's very important for donors to get a sense of this. Unrestricted funding and an unrestricted gift given to a charity allows the charity to spend that money wherever they need it most, where whatever their need is. Um, and when you support an organization, uh, virtually all donors uh, contribute their money to a general unrestricted fund. In the cases of a crisis like Harvey, especially when it's one of three consecutive hurricanes, um, a donor may want their gift to go specifically to the relief and rebuilding of one specific community. And in those cases, uh, you, can, uh, get, you can restrict your gift to organizations who do this, and they'll tell you on their website, would you like your gift to go exclusively to the relief of um, pain and suffering and crises related to Harvey or, or Irma, frankly, you got to the point where the American Red Cross, where you could choose Harvey or Irma or Maria and others. Oh, wow. right? This simultaneous disaster is really something new for us. Well, so are are all charities and nonprofits set up that way? Um, all can, but not everyone does. Um, in the time of disaster, um, on Charity Navigator, we only feature the organizations who are. Uh, providing restricted uh, gift opportunities for one particular crisis. And that's why when you, when you access a site like ours, uh, you, you choose the disaster, and if the organization is listed there and you make a donation through our site or through their website, the money can go right through just to that cause. But when, okay, so but when you're evaluating them as Charity Navigator, you use the same criteria no matter what, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. The, the criteria does not change. Uh, in fact, you know, our standards... Uh, are high above all else, and it's only after you've achieved a three- or four-star rating and we acknowledge you as a highly rated organization that we even begin to include you in one of these hot topics on our website. Okay, <laughs> okay. and, and i got to tell you, I am a big fan of your website because it's so easy to use and it's so detailed that um, anybody looking to volunteer or, or get involved out there, it's, it's so neat to drill down. Uh, one other thing in this study that jumped out was you have a section called The Response, and uh, where am I here? 31.3%. So 31% of the nonprofits in this study began responding to Hurricane Harvey 
on the date of landfall with another almost 22% beginning the day after. That, that gave me chills. That is stunning. Uh, the fact that those people were willing to go down there, volunteer, and get right in the middle of the storm. Yeah, it's an extraordinary level of preparedness that we have in this country. And, you know, that that's the general activity of most of these organizations that are responding. They are ready every day, regardless of crisis. That's ah, that's crazy, though. That's The day of landfall, they were down there setting up shop and, and helping out. Man. Right. Well, you know, let's take that one step further, even. You know, the... The study reveals that for every one paid employee of one of these organizations, they use 20, nearly 20 volunteers. For every one employee, there were nearly 20 volunteers on the ground working in Houston. Wow. Wow. That's huge. And, and those people are from all over the country, right? Correct. Those, uh, all over the country and international, in, in fact. Um, but, but it's very important, you know, people... Uh, there are volunteering opportunities for most of these organizations. Getting yourself involved, especially those with special skills, whether they're, you know, utility workers or, or uh, rescue workers or people coming from all over the country, these specialized skills, you can come in and volunteer, and it leads to the creation of these marvelous communities of volunteers that meet at disasters, trade best practices, and teach each other how best to respond. And we're seeing that today in California during this wildfire crisis, where crews from all over the country have brought their skills in firefighting to California, and it's elevated the way the response uh, is being organized. So it's no different in Houston. People came from everywhere, and as much as we think our organization. Uh, rely on their paid staff, and they do. It was twenty to one volunteers to paid staff. Man, I, I didn't realize that was the. That's a massive ratio. <laughs> yeah, it's very. It, it, it again, it speaks to the American spirit. And I, I do want to take. And you don't have to comment on this because I get it. But I'm going to take something out of this study. Uh, there was a. There's a list of participating nonprofits, and I something just jumped out at me as I was scanning over this again. It just jumped out, and I want to pitch this to everybody. There's a lot of, and again, Larry, this is this is my this is my soapbox, but it's based on your study. There's a lot of uh, divisiveness in the country right now, and looking at this list of participating nonprofits, in order, it says International Relief Teams, Islamic Relief USA, Jewish United Fund, uh, and uh, Metropolitan Chicago, and then it goes on and on and on. So you had you had Muslims and Jews all working together on this thing. That again much like the total giving amount that kind of sums up our country and this is a this study's a great mosaic in that and very reflective of, of, of how the country responds to disasters you know it, it is a mosaic um, Christian charities Jewish charities Islamic charities non-secular charities um, we do participate in volunteer side by side to to the uh, provide relief for all it's great what a, what a great facet to pull out of this. And something else, um, and, and you mentioned, you know, you mentioned the different skills out in the California wildfires. And uh, people tend to forget, and I saw, uh, it was a news report this week, I think. Um, people tend to forget about animals. Uh, 
there were a lot of organizations involved with rescuing animals, and they were they were uh, where is it? The Houston SPCA was part of your study as well, or participated. Uh, yeah, there were several animal groups that participated, and you know, talk about things that surprised me um, is that a, a quarter of a million pounds of pet food, a quarter of a million pounds of pet food, were given to victims immediately following the storm. We forget, you flee your home, you leave the dog food behind. Even if you remember or are able to take your pet, it's not as if you're going back to the, for the, the bag of chow. Right. Um, you know, and, and our best friends need to eat the same way we do. And the level of support and care to animals that were uh, rescued by their victims and tragically those that were the animals that were left behind and needed caring for uh, during the week between the time they could be reunited with their owners. Oh, I just think that's that's so refreshing because you're right. You know, something happens and, and your first thought is just get Fido in the car and, and get out of Dodge, but uh, you leave everything behind. So that, that was, that's great to see. Right. And, and you, you hit a community like Houston, and let's remember there are ranchers. Plenty of horses were, were had to be rescued in this, and, and cattle and other large animals. So um, it's part of a community coming together, and it really, the SPCA of, of Houston led an incredible effort, um, and it did include volunteers um, from most states of the Union. Larry, was there anything, and this is this is strictly uh, your opinion on this, but was there anything that sort of, um, when you got the results back, you tallied them, you put it all together, was there anything that jumped out or surprised you about this, or, or sort of stood apart from what your expectations might have been? Uh, I think... In the crisis itself, and not to repeat myself, I, I, I was genuinely surprised, shocked, and delighted by the number of volunteers who were able to participate in organized relief efforts. So I, I do think that was a, uh, a bit of a surprise for me. And I think what's important that we've documented here for the first time is that these 32 organizations actually worked with a network of over 300 other organizations to provide relief on the ground and make sure that the services they were providing were, were able to reach everyone in need. And I, and that's really the scale of the uh, networks that we rely upon during times of disaster. Um, to think it's 10 times the number of organizations we surveyed, right, that they're each engaging, let's say, on average, 10 other groups to reach the victims in, in, in a storm like this. So I guess the underlying message for, for anybody listening is no matter the size of the organization or the scope of the work, you can make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's one of those wonderful stories. In times of disaster, every dollar helps. Every donation helps. Among the things we certainly encourage people to do during storms like Harvey is uh, to donate money rather than goods. That might be an interesting point to to um, to make to the audience. You know, if you're you're in Pittsburgh and you want to send uh, food and dog food and diapers and water uh, to a town like Houston, uh, it, it's a lot more efficient to donate money and let the organization uh, get their resources locally uh, and in mass uh, rather than spending the money to ship 
uh, food and, and water and things across the country. Well, that makes sense. They're going to know the sources down there. They're going to be able to get it in bulk, maybe get some discounts, and then and then do it all in one fell swoop. So that that makes total sense. Um, with a with a study like this, in I mean, is this how do I is this a useful tool for say? Uh, local officials, like local elected officials, mayors or town councils or, or police departments? One of the most effective uses of this study is actually, Jim, what you and I are doing right now. It's an opportunity to bring uh, the scale of the disaster, the response, and those providing aid back into the public conversation so we can help communities continue to rally the kind of support they need from their elected officials, from their municipal organizations, uh, and frankly, from, from all Americans. So, I mean, does this, and those are good points, those are excellent points, does this also help maybe uh, other, maybe nonprofits that aren't aware of this or, or weren't involved? Yeah, so it will help other communities and other nonprofits just to get a sense of the scale of response. Um, officials all over the country uh, have to look at a survey like this one by Charity Navigator and say, wow, if my city was hit like this, am I really prepared to provide uh, you know, half a billion, uh, half a million doses of medicine in 24 hours for people who are been separated from their, um, their urgent care? Right, things like that. So, so part of what's great about this study is that it is informative uh, about the level of need when a city this size uh, experiences so much damage. So, are you going to eventually have uh, like a separate part on your website, a separate section where where this stuff's going to stand alone? I mean, I know you have the study posted, but is there going to be some kind of uh, I don't know standalone mm, crisis relief section on there? Uh, it will, we'll keep it posted on our site. We'll build it out. We're very interested. I mean, the work is ongoing right now in real time, um, especially with the relation to Maria and Irma. Um, and we're very interested to see how the responses compare, how the damage compared. Um, obviously, Maria, we had uh, less dollar value in destruction, but so many more people uh, killed and displaced. So, we're, it, these studies like these are giving us an opportunity to assess the need after storms that cause more property damage versus those that cause more human damage. So you're, you mentioned this at the top, and you just mentioned it again, but how far along are you with the, the, uh, the other studies, the Maria and the Irma studies? Uh, uh, Sarah Nathans and her team are into it. I mean, they're just a few weeks out um, from the availability. Oh, that's great. And, yeah. So, so we're, we're ongoing. I mean, this is, this is real work happening in real time. Has there been interest from uh, weird entities, i.e. the government? Uh, you know, I, I, they have a copy of the report. Um, it's obviously publicly available. I don't, um, uh, you know, there's no addition, there's no contact that, that we've had, um, to speak of on that. Well, there, um, there might be after this, Larry. There might be after this there you, show. <laughs> there you go. We'd appreciate it. Because, you know, it, it's that's what information's for. You know, we live in a, in a data-focused world. And to give the people who believe in causes like relieving community disasters, 
to give them the data they need to understand the the impact and results of the donations they've made and evaluate how they continue to give is really very powerful. Well, again, I just want to I want to tee up some additional numbers. We have about a minute and a half left, but uh, almost 13 million meals, uh, 83 million pounds of food, uh, 13 million doses of medicine. That's something else that I don't think people, unless it's real dire, they don't think about that off the top of their head when they're when they're running. Uh, a million books, and as you mentioned, a quarter million pounds of pet food and supplies, which is amazing. Uh, and the list goes on and on and on. This is this is just a fantastic list, Larry. Uh, thank you. We're, we're, we're grateful you, you're to bring it to the attention of so many. No, this is great. And uh, I would ask, you know, in a couple of weeks or, or a month or so, uh, when the other reports are available, uh, please come back and, and we can walk through them because I would love to hear about it and how it how sort of how it stacks up against this one. Great. We'll be back. We're, we're, we're here for you. And, and you know what? We're in the when we celebrate the year anniversary of a seasonal storm, we always keep our fingers crossed and, and pray for good weather. Uh, so we don't have to see another summer like we saw last year. Yeah, we don't we don't need that for a while. So, uh, again, Larry, thank you so much for joining us. This is a great conversation. Uh, my pleasure, Jim. Have a good good day. Thanks a lot, Chief Operating Officer for Charity Navigator, Larry Lieberman. And uh, I encourage you again to jump on the Charity Navigator website and uh, and pour through the numbers for all you data geeks out there. There's a lot. There's a lot. So uh, jump into it, and and uh, we'll wait a couple of weeks, and some other studies will come out, and we'll, you know, we'll we'll compare and contrast. We are going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with some news. If you want to keep up with the latest in veteran news away from the radio, stop by our website at www.theveteransreport.com. There you'll find news headlines along with links to media outlets around the world. You can also find links to every state's veteran services office. And for you film buffs, there's even a link to a war movie database. We appreciate you stopping by the Facebook page at facebook.com slash theveteransreport. There, like the website, you'll find the latest news and information related to veterans. For you high-speed individuals who want to limit yourself to 140 characters, stop by our Twitter account. It's a great way to find information on veteran organizations throughout the country and what they're up to. You can tweet us by using at the Vets Report. If you'd like to email the show directly, please send us your input, comments, or suggestions to editor at theveteransreport.com. Thanks again for checking out our pages. Thanks for listening, and thank you for supporting our veterans community. And we're back. That was, uh, again, we have to thank Larry Lieberman. That was a, that was a cool discussion. Um, you know, natural disasters, obviously nobody, uh, nobody, uh, I don't know. Uh, you can't see him coming, really. Um, and especially, the, you know, Hurricane Harvey was so, so devastating and, and massive in scale and scope. Uh, the fact that more lives weren't lost is amazing. But again, jump into the study. Like I mentioned, it's, it's you know, seeing uh, Christians and Jews and Muslims all working together on this, uh, out there bailing water and feeding people. And then you see things like you know, the ASPCA and all these other animal rescue groups out there, you know, saving Fido and saving the horses and the, the chickens and the cows. Um, just uh, what, what, an, what an incredible operation 
that entire thing was. And, you know, we got to thank Charity Navigator for putting the, putting the time and effort into doing this study. This is great, great stuff. So, again, it applies no matter what the organization, whether it's a vet organization or not, right? If it's a charity, if it's a nonprofit, uh, all of the same uh, methodology would apply to doing a study. And, and you can step back and look at this thing and go, you know, are we, are we, how are we doing relative to how these other groups did? So, good stuff. Again, hit, hit up their website and check them out. It's fantastic. Uh, we do want to say hello to our partners and friends at WTF Nation. That's how you say it in Pittsburgh, guys. W. WTF. But at WTF Nation Radio. So if you haven't tuned in, uh, get on it. They are everywhere. They're on Facebook, Twitter, Mixer, Periscope, uh, stuff that hasn't been invented yet. Because what they've done is they've become part of the Space Force. They've gone through time, uh, light years ahead. They're developing social media platforms, and they're coming back and putting their stuff on it. How do you like that? And if you want to ever be a part of the show, if you're listening, you want to be a part of the show, you want to challenge me on something, you want to take me on, um, you just want to say hello, uh, call 412-825-6262. I'll take your call. I'll take it. That's right. Or you can, uh, you know, you can hit up the Veterans Report on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram and drop a message. Uh, so where are we here? So the, I mentioned this at the, oh, I want to, I want to tee this up. I got the news as I was driving in today. Uh, my buddy, Dave, former 82nd airborne. So all you folks down at Bragg, all you red beret wearing, uh, gorillas down there. Uh, Dave was former 82nd. We served together later in a different unit. Uh, Dave, no name, just got engaged. So I want to say congratulations and if you don't invite me to your wedding, uh, I will extract some kind of revenge because I have photos from many years ago. So congr- <laughs> congratulations there, Airborne. You're about to ruin your life. I mean, you're about to get on with the rest of your life. So good job. Uh, American Legion is having their 100th convention in Minneapolis, August 24th through the 30th. It's a pretty big deal, Right. In, in the Ron Burgundy sense, in every other sense, it's a big deal. Uh, it's a full packed schedule. They're going to have a parade. <laughs> and we'll get to the other parade soon. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, they're going to have <laughs> they're going to have a parade. Uh, they have lined up uh, a Twins game, Minnesota Twins game, preseason Vikings game, Minnesota Warriors hockey game for attendees, along with uh, dinners and speakers and, and different seminars. So I don't know if any of you are involved with the American Legion, but that is next week. So that'll be, um, yeah, it's going to keep them busy, which is pretty awesome, right? And, you know, you know say I, I've been, uh, well, I'll back off of that. The American Legion does a lot at the federal level for vets. Um, they're a big, big organization. They have a lot of sway in the nation's capital. So, Again, if you're not involved, you know, think about it. They don't, it's not just, it's not just the, you know, the once a month meetings. They do a lot of stuff. So uh, good on them for, for, uh, for taking it to the legislators. Uh, what else here? I'm trying to open an email. I'm trying to open an email because, uh, where is it? 
All right, well, we'll figure this out in a second. Uh, what else? What else do we have here? Oh, so tomorrow, August 19th, and I think I mentioned this at the opening of the show, tomorrow is National Aviation Day, and it commemorates the birthday of Orville Wright. So I don't know if anybody's into that, uh, but National Aviation Day. Uh, not a lot of news coverage on that, you know, not a, I guess not a, not a big holiday, right? So, where am I, where am I, where am I? Oh, so I don't know if any of you, oh, wait, wait, one other thing. It was, this, this past week was, uh, National Code Talkers Day. And I don't know if any of you are aware of it. I hope all of you are aware of it. But, uh, National Code Talkers Day, the Navajo Code Talkers were integral in helping the Marine Corps back in World War II. Uh, 400, more than 400 Navajo men were recruited by the Marines during the Second World War to develop and utilize a code in their native language, which was used to transmit military messages. And part of the deal with it was uh, nobody could break their code. It was never broken. Which is pretty cool. Um, and so they, they fought for years and years and years to have a... Uh, <clears throat> sort of a national recognition. Um, in December of 2006, the Navajo Nation Council uh, established August 14th of each year as Navajo Nation Code Talkers Day and as a tribal holiday. That date, August 14th, was selected based on a proclamation signed in 1982 by Ronald Reagan. So, you know, the, the proclamation itself goes back some time, but... Uh, you don't see a lot of news about this. And, and unfortunately, you know, these guys are World War II vets. A lot of them are old, uh, and most of them are gone, I think, aren't they? Most of the Navajo, uh, most of the Code Talkers are gone, which is a shame because those guys were, uh, they were involved in so much. They played such a, such an important, you know, pivotal role in what the Marines were doing in the Pacific. Um, it can't... Uh, I don't know. It's it's tough to to sort of quantify what their value was. I mean, it's it's just incredible and what an amazing story. And those guys, man, you talk about hardcore. They were right in the thick of it. Uh, so good on them for having their own day. Also, where are we here? I don't know if you saw this. This was on. Uh, we threw this up on the Veterans Report Facebook page. Vandals open hatches and flood World War II era submarine in New Jersey. A historical submarine in New Jersey that is part of a naval museum had memorial plaques stolen and was intentionally flooded after vandals opened up numerous hatches in what police call a disgraceful incident. Hackensack police say they responded Tuesday to the USS Ling, it's L-I-N-G, after an unknown, unknown number of people entered the sub, which forms part of the naval, the New Jersey... And I'm having a tough time here. Uh, the New Jersey Naval Museum and forcefully opened numerous hatches throughout the submarine, causing the interior of the sub to flood with river water. This comes one day after the police were called because four bronze plaques were stolen from the USS Ling and the Naval Museum. Uh, the plaques were pried from a cement casing and were valued at more than $10,000. 
The USS Ling is a 2,500-ton, 312-foot-long World War II-era vessel that is situated on the Hackensack River. The cost to repair the damaged interior is currently unknown. So that's classy. That's classy. <laughs> Why? Uh, people just don't value stuff anymore. They just don't... Uh, I mean, I, you know, not, I'm not trying to draw a, a distinction between one kind of vandalism and another. But if you're going to vandalize something, what I mean, what happened to just spray painting trains, right? Or breaking windows? Well, you know, I mean, I don't know. You'd think somewhere in, in the brain housing group of the people that did this, they would stop and think, mm, this is historical. This is part of a museum. Maybe we should go wreck something else. I, I don't know. And try to sink a submarine that was docked. Now, I, apparently, this thing was in so much mud. It was in like uh, 8 to 10 feet of mud underneath the the hull that that's kind of what saved it from completely going under. I mean, at that point, it would have been, you know, it, w- it wouldn't have been worth it. Um, so, uh, good thing the Hackensack River is gross. <laughs> so, where are we? So the parade. Oh, yes. Now, I don't want to get into the parade yet. Well, maybe I will. So, uh, (laughs) I will. So, the infamous Donald Trump military parade, right, based on his visit to France and, uh, you know, seeing seeing how the French did it. You know, Donald came back and said, well, we we could do that. We could do it bigger and better. You know, we've done it with... uh, Pretty much everything else, you know, we make bigger cars, we make, we have a bigger military, we have a bigger deficit, bigger houses, a bigger deficit. Um, So Trump came back, proposed this military parade, and everybody threw their hands up in the air and said, oh, you know, do we really need it? Well, it was one thing when the parade was originally estimated at whatever it was, uh, 10 million, I think it was, what, 9 million or 10 million was the original estimate. Uh, which, I mean, you don't have to be, you you don't have to be an accountant to know that 10 million bucks was not even close to what it was going to cost. I mean, 10 million, 10 million dollars would not have covered, uh, it wouldn't have covered enough for a, a really juicy photo op. Um, so anyway, they came back the other day, uh, and, and President Trump announced that he canceled plans for the Veterans Day military parade. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, he had chosen Veterans Day. Uh, canceled plans for the Veterans Day military parade, citing the, quote, ridiculously high price tag. A day after U.S. officials said the event could cost $92 million. More than three times the price first suggested by the White House. What? I don't remember him suggesting... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess they did. Yeah, I'm sorry. They did. Um, so Trump accused local Washington, D.C. politicians of price gouging. But preliminary estimates from the Pentagon showed that roughly roughly 50 million dollars would cover military aircraft, equipment, personnel and other support. The remainder would be borne by other agencies and largely involve security costs. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser shot Bowser 
shot back on <laughs> on Twitter Friday. Do you remember that from uh, Sean on Remember Bowser? Uh, uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser shot back on Twitter Friday that she was the one who, quote, finally got through to the reality star in the White House with the realities of parades slash events slash demonstrations in Trump America, in parentheses, sad. You know, it's kind of funny, like reading that, because I've read that twice now. The, the fact that people are speaking, they're, they're tweeting, they're tweeting in Donald Trump's voice, sad. He uses that one a lot, sad. So he's gotten to, he's trolled him. He's trolled him to the point where he's converted him, right? The Defense Department had announced Thursday there would be no parade in 2018. Trump tweeted that per, tweeted uh, that perhaps something could be scheduled next year when the price comes way down. It's going to be huge. It's going to come way down. He did not explain how the costs would be reduced. Uh, Trump said he would instead attend an event at Andrews Air Force Base on another day and travel to Paris for November 11th events, marking the centennial of the end of fighting in World War I. Uh, okay. <clears throat> Colonel Rob Manning, a Pentagon spokesman. Oh, we've heard his name many times. Many, many times. Uh, said Thursday that the military and the White House had agreed to explore opportunities in 2019. Uh, where are we? Associated Press reported that the parade would cost $92 million. So, okay. Um, oh, officials said the parade plans had not yet been approved by Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, although Mattis himself said late Thursday that he had seen no such estimate and questioned the media reports. Mattis, here's my favorite part. Mattis, who spoke before the announcement that the parade would not happen in 2018, added, I'm not dignifying that number, 92 million, with a reply. I would discount that, and anybody who said, quote that number, or parentheses that number, I'll almost guarantee you one thing. They probably said, I need to stay anonymous. No kidding, because you look like an idiot. And number two, whoever wrote it needs to get better sources. I'll just leave it at that. Mm. Oh, St. Mattis. You are highly revered. And we lay prostrate at the altar of Sekdef. However, you are wrong. You are wrong. I, I would have to, I mean, I think 92 million is probably a conservative estimate, don't you? What were they, t- they were talking about moving a whole division up there, right? To walk through the streets of, of, of D.C. Uh, there's enough traffic up there. They don't need, they don't need military stuff. They don't need tanks. They don't need Hummers. They don't need, uh, they don't need anything up there. They don't need all this stuff, you know, MRAPs going through the streets, Right. Patchy zooming through the, zooming through the narrow corridors. I mean, if you're gonna do it, just take out the city. You know that would, if you want to help the, <laughs> you want to help the taxpayers, just level it. Uh, oh, here's early, earlier this year, the White House Budget Director told Congress that the cost to taxpayers could be 10 million to 30 million. That's where I was getting that number. That's where I got the 10 million dollar number. We don't need a military parade seriously i i again i talked about it i think his heart was in the right place i really do i think i think initially 
I think initially he saw what was going on in France, right, for Bastille Day. And he thought, well, why don't we do that? Why don't we, you know, why don't we make something a little more, why, why aren't we a little more flamboyant with our, with our military, right? Why don't we do that? Why don't we celebrate the military? Why don't we celebrate what these folks are, what they do, uh, you know, the, the, the crazy machines that we have access to, the, the immense raw power, right? I get it. I get it. He was, he was being a patriot, right? I th- again, good intentions coming out of the gate. And then it devolved. And he is a stubborn, stubborn, stubborn human being. Like, he's not the kind of guy that's going to look at this and go, hey, you know what, everybody? I meant well. Uh, clearly, I missed, you know, I misfired on this one. We'll just let it die, right? Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do something else. My bad. He's never, never going to do that. And it seems like I, I don't. I have yet really to hear from anybody I know who's a vet or even in the military who's a big fan of this, who's in favor of it at all, to any degree. I, I don't, I see zero support for doing this parade, none, which means he is either uh, stubborn to the point uh, of, well, he's tone deaf, right? He is absolutely tone deaf when it comes to listening uh, to the masses, I think. With a lot of things. Not everything. I mean, he gets it, right? Um, he heard about the economy. He's pushing the economy, right? He's heard about, uh, you know, international agreements that were not good for the U.S. He's pushed those, right? He gets that part. of it. He gets the big picture stuff. But the little in the weeds kind of things, absolutely tone deaf. And on this one, he has completely, it's like he drew a line in the sand and said, I don't care what the input is. I don't care how much support I have or don't have. I'm going to go through this because I said I was. And it's, that's crazy. That's nuts. Right? You can be obstinate, but but not in not in the role that he has. You want to be an obstinate CEO or an obstinate cop or an obstinate teacher or whatever, go, cool, go do that. You can't do it here. Especially not when you're talking about spending almost $100 million for what? To do the same thing that everybody does on every military base around the world. I can't tell you how many uh, change of command ceremonies I had to go through. Right. All the pomp and circumstance. Right. You get the band out there and you get the the dignitaries. Uh, we had you know, I went through different ceremonies where we had the president there. We had the secretary of defense there. We had the secretary of state there. I went through a lot of those. And, and that's not to mention just the regular change of command stuff. Right. You get a new base commander. Uh, it's a pain in the backside. Get all the troops out there, you know, in the sweltering sun and march up and down like idiots for two hours and. But at that, you know, you're not looking at the rehearsals, right? And the coordination and feeding everybody and getting the tents. And it's, he didn't think this one through. And now he's doubling down saying, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do it anyway. Just dumb. And, and what, what else could we spend a hundred million dollars on in this country? Right? Oh, if you don't have a list that you could spit out immediately, you're not paying attention. Because I guarantee most people if I said, what could you spend $100 million on? If somebody handed you $100 million bucks and you could spend it uh, with restrictions, right? It has to go uh, at the federal level. It has to help other people, right? Put those boundaries on it. How many of you could spit out immediately three to five awesome ideas, right? This $100 million, uh, even for the troops, heck, spend $100 million bucks 
given the ground pounders, given the infantry better boots, right, go out and buy some new sights for the rifles. You know, do, uh, spend $100 million to, I don't know, uh, I don't know, get, get new PT gear out there. Yeah, You know, we're talking, you know, Army's talking about revamping their entire physical fitness test. They're going to need things, right? They're going to need weight benches, and they're going to need uh, new pull-up bars, and they're going to need the, the uh, what do you call it, like the 100, the, the, the drag dummies or the mannequins or whatever they call them that fire departments use. Those aren't cheap. Spend the money on that stuff. Spend the money on troop readiness, right? Spend the money on homeless veterans. Spend the money on uh, orphanages. How about that? Buy Xboxes for all those kids waiting to be adopted. You big dummy. How about that? Spend it on uh, women's shelters around the country. There's an idea. Spend it on the world's largest animal shelter. Go buy a thousand acres in Virginia somewhere and build a shelter for neglected pets. A hundred million bucks if you do it right. And and I know Trump could, right? We're talking about getting things built, right? We're we're executing a plan. Take the hundred million and you could spend it a lot wiser than marching a bunch of troops through the streets of the District of Columbia. The city doesn't want it. The troops don't want it. Veterans don't want it. So who does? Just let that one linger for a minute. <laughs> Too much? <laughs> it's just, it's just uh, $100 million, but I could say, like, if it, were, if it were $10 million, I'd say, well, Congress probably, get, you know, the House and the Senate go through that in uh, salad dressing in a week, right? Wouldn't even blink. $100 million, I, I think by the time all is said and done, it's going to be a lot more than that. Because you got to think about the fuel involved. you got to think about the time and effort. Again, the security concerns... Um, the cleanup. If you had, if you had a full-blown military parade in the District of Columbia, and I mean, did it upright, like Hollywood style, like Peter Berg style, right? Like out of a movie, and you want this thing to go on for, you know, a mile and a half, two miles, right? If you and people in D.C. come out for anything, those people will come out for any event. You're going to get a million, million and a half people in a heartbeat, lining the streets, right? Because they want to, because people don't get to see tanks and helicopters and artillery. They don't get to see that on a regular basis. You're going to get at least a million people. How much garbage do you think they leave around? I'll tell you, because I've been there for the Fourth of July. I've been to D.C. for the Fourth of July. I've been there for other stuff. The aftermath, it, it makes the the Kenny Chesney concert here at Heinz Hall look like child's play, or or Heinz Field. You know, you see the pictures of all the garbage everywhere, and it takes three days to clean up. The stuff in D.C. is insane. Now, they do a pretty good job because it's not their first rodeo, but it costs money, a lot of money. So I, I'm, I'm going to go on record saying, dumb idea, spend $100 million on something better, more positive, and something that will actually help people. This helps nobody. This helps nobody. This serves no purpose. And again, the troops don't want to do it. You'd think just from a political standpoint that he might think this one through, right? Uh, I mean, he, has, uh, he just gave him a pay raise, so he's got that wind in his sails. Why screw it up? I don't know. So when I when I, you know when Donald and I do lunch next week because we do it all the time, I'm going to tell him. I'm going to tell him, Mr. President, drop the idea, just walk away, right? You can even start your own hashtag. 
I don't know what it's going to walk away from the parade or I give up or no parades or the circus left town, whatever you want to call it. Tweet that out. Tweet out how you're going to spend $100 million to help more Americans. Do it that way. And you're going to be you're going to win more, more fans that way. All right, I'm off my soapbox. So we've about uh, we have a little under a minute left. And uh, I wanted to tell everybody next week. Next week's going to be a big deal. Um, our guest next week is retired Brigadier General Carol Eggert, who is the senior vice president for military and veteran affairs at Comcast. And yes, the Comcast, the big one. Uh, so the general will be joining us next Saturday to talk about their Comcast efforts and initiatives and how they're helping veterans across the board. So tune in next week. And uh, if you have any questions, feel free to call in and we'll talk to you then. Till next time, I'm your host, Jim Cannon. You've been listening to The Veterans Report. Let others know about the show. You can find us online at theveteransreport.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to editor at theveteransreport.com. Join us again at the same time for up-to-date veterans news and information. The Veterans Report, thank you for your service and carry on. The Veterans Report has been sponsored by James Cannon.